The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so that is the uh, famous homage to the Triple Gem uh, found in the suttas. All this chanting is actually from the suttas, which is quite nice. So this is the, the word of the Buddha that we're chanting here, which is... Uh, uh, Good. So uh, I, it's good to sometimes study these words because it's much more inspiring if you understand what is going on rather than just chanting away. And it's kind of, the meaning is fairly straightforward and simple actually in these uh, little verses. So anyway, let's come back to the uh, where we left off uh, last night. Uh, and we have been looking at the second noble truth. And after the second noble truth comes the third noble truth. Uh, so just finishing the second one. So now... Once you understand the uh, cause of suffering, uh, then you, it is obvious, just like in the medical science we are talking about before, if you eliminate the cause, then you Im eliminate the symptoms, or you elim eliminate the result of that cause. Uh, yeah? So the third one is about what happens when you eliminate that particular cause. Uh, this is the third noble truth. Uh, so uh, I'm gonna, uh, not going to spend too much time on this, uh, and, uh, uh, but because... Uh, I want to get down to the path. The path is really where all the action is, uh, as they say. That's where the interesting part is. Uh, but uh, it's good to uh, have a complete overview of what is going on here. So now this, uh, coming back again to the Dhamma Chakka Pavatthana Sutta, the setting forth or the rolling forth uh, of the wheel of the Dhamma. This is now on page 8 in your little uh, 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 little sheets there. Uh, and... Uh, this is how the standard explanation of the third noble truth found in the suttas in so many different places. Uh, this is what the Buddha says. Now, this is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Uh, it is a fading away and cessation of that very same craving. Uh, with nothing left over, giving it away, letting it go, releasing it, uh, and not adhering to it. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, uh, it is the fading away of that same, the very same craving. Taseva, taseva, tanhaya. Taseva, tanhaya is the same craving. In other words, it's referring back to the second noble truth. In the sutta, this comes one after the other. So when it says that very same, it refers back to the previous one. Uh, yeah? And of course, that same craving is the three types of craving we talked about before. The craving for sensual pleasures in the world, the craving to exist, uh, and also the craving to not exist. Uh, these are the three cravings. Uh, so these are the three cravings that have to cease completely. Uh, yeah? It's not any other craving or desires. Uh, it's not kind of, uh, kind of more functional things. Uh, these are sometimes called the kiriya, kiriya uh, uh, um, chaitana or the kiriya sankharas, the things that you do just to exist yeah which you do as an arahant uh, as well but these are very specific types of cravings and desires and it's these ones that have to cease without remainder uh, and you will see there that it talks about the fading away and cessation and uh, of course the idea of fading away means that it is a gradual uh, the Pali word for fading away is viraga viraga has this double meaning on the one hand it means fading away on the other hand, it means like dispassion. Uh, and when it's dispassion, it is, has the same, uh, roughly the same meaning as uh, 
uh, the ending of craving, yeah, dispassion. But it also has this idea of fading away. And that is quite a common meaning for viraga in the suttas. Uh, so it is, a, again, there's a gradual path. Yeah, it fades away, fades away, as you see in your meditation practice. And eventually, bang, it's gone. Poof, simsalabim, and it's gone. Uh, and that is kind of the uh, uh, the magic of the path, yeah, the, uh, when it all kind of disappears at the very, at the very end there. Uh, this is what it is about. And when it fades away completely, it's all gone. Then you have eliminated the source of, of uh, dukkha. Yeah, dukkha comes to an end as a consequence. You're no longer projecting yourself into the future. Uh, because it is the desire to exist and the desire for sensual pleasures uh, that is always looking to the future. Uh, now you don't look to the future anymore. There's nothing in the future to interest you. Uh, and because there's nothing in the future to interest you, well, it means that you don't have that projection anymore, anywhere. You're content in the present moment. If you sit down and you meditate because the future is really uninteresting to you, that's why you can go into samadhi so easily. Yeah, There's none of that uh, uh, mind being outside of the present moment. You're always present because the, the future has no interest for you anymore. Huh? And that is why when you then come to the point of rebirth, uh, well, actually it doesn't happen because that... Uh, projection doesn't really happen anymore here yeah. so um then you have these uh, uh, number of uh, uh, synonyms used here for the idea of the cessation of craving the buddha always uses lots of synonyms uh, and remember the reason for that in large part is because it is an oral tradition and by using repetition and synonyms it's a bit like you you stabilize the meaning of the text uh, or the, the oral text if you like uh, yeah so you have giving it away which is chaga, yeah. You give away uh, the, the the craving. Uh, chaga is also means generosity, uh, so it has this double meaning. Uh, yeah, generosity, giving away, uh, um, and is used in both senses throughout the suttas. Uh, letting it go, pati nisaga, a very uh, kind of word which really means that you let things go at the very end of the path. Pati nisaga, also related to the word bosaga that you may have heard sometimes in the suttas. Uh, Vasagga is very closely related. And all of these words are used, it's interesting, they're all used in the sense of both generosity and also coming to the end of the path. Uh, isn't that kind of fascinating that generosity and coming to the end of the path are so closely linked to each other? Yeah, because why is that? Well, because when you are generous, you are letting things go. Yeah, generosity is a basically an application, it's an early application of the idea of letting go of everything here. So if you, for a stingy person, it is very hard to practice this path because even that basic kind of uh, spark at the very beginning of being able to let go isn't there because that uh, letting go that you do when you are generous is essentially the same kind of act uh, that you have all the way to the end of the path of letting go of things. Uh, and this shows you why generosity is such an important part of the Buddhist path uh, and why it is an early expression of the entire process of letting go all the way to the end. Uh, the same vocabulary is even used, yeah? Chaga means giving. It also means here, kind of the very end of the path itself. Uh, Vosagga, also used for giving, relinquishing to other people, and also relinquishing at the very end of the path. Uh, so that so there's the same kind of attitude of mind that happens in both of these things, uh, which is, kind of, which is uh, uh, fascinating here. Yeah. And... Uh, of course, it is also 
uh, one is much more profound than the other one, but uh, you, you get the general idea that there is a similar kind of attitude happening there. So letting it go here, patinisaga, vusagga, relinquishment again, uh, releasing it, uh, muti, this is related to the Pali word vimuti, uh, which means uh, liberation at the end of the path, you're getting liberated. Uh, uh, and this word is also actually used for the idea of generosity. You are liberating, you're letting go of something, releasing it, yeah, releasing it to, to someone else, if you like. Yeah? So all of these are very closely related. Uh, and uh, so vimuti means the liberation. Uh, liberation from what? Uh, well, liberation from dukkha, from suffering, yeah, which yeah, is the same thing as the highest happiness. Uh, we always talk about dukkha, but you might as well talk about sukkha, because when you know dukkha, you also know sukkha. Sukkha and dukkha always go together in this way. Huh? And then not adhering to it, which is the last one, analaya. And analaya is uh, uh, this uh, word that you find in uh, even in the present day. One of the really nice things I like about traveling to India, you travel to India and you see the names of places and you see kind of little signs everywhere. And you can read it if you know a bit of Pali. You can read these signs because uh, modern Hindi and Pali are actually very closely related to each other. Yeah, you would know that. Well, even Sinhala has a lot in common with uh, Pali. Yeah, if you know Sinhala, you know Pali. Very often you have a, an idea what words might mean. Sometimes you don't because sometimes it has changed in Sinhala and it has a new meaning in Sinhala and it's different from Pali. And then you get led astray. Yeah, <laughs> that can also happen. Yeah. So you have to know the difference between the two. But there's a lot of commonality between these languages. Uh, so sometimes you travel in India and you travel around and you see these signs Uttar, Uttar Pradesh. Yeah, Uttar, Uttar, same as, same as in the Sudhas, Uttar is Uttara. North, yeah, Pradesh is the same as Padesa in Pali, which means like place. It means the northern place, yeah. <laughs> so Uttar Pradesh is a state, which means the northern place. It's pretty. It's kind of straightforward. You know exactly what it means when you get the Majjima, uh, Majja Pradesh, same kind of things, uh, and uh, so you find these things throughout. And of course, the Himalaya mountains, uh, same thing again. Hima is snow. Alaya is the same word we have here as Analaya. This is the negative version of Alaya. Alaya means like to rest or to settle or to adhere or to hold on to. So, th so the Himalaya is the place where the snow adheres or the snow settles down yeah that is why these mountains are called the himalaya mountains uh, so it, it's nice you have it you get some benefits from knowing pali uh, yeah <laughs> this is one of those little benefits of knowing the pali language you want to learn pali now uh, yeah you travel around india you see the signs you know what's going on uh, one of the hidden benefits of knowing a bit of pali here uh, so uh, i i don't normally recommend people to learn pali because it's uh, too time consuming for most people uh, but it's kind of interesting, yeah, and uh, it helps you also to read Sanskrit and all of this because it, these languages are very similar to each other. Yeah. So it has the idea of resting somewhere, of settling down on something, taking your stand on something. Yeah, you stand and then you can relax. Ooh, I can sit down here. The ground is safe. I can stand here. Yeah. In other words, you attach to it. You adhere to it. Uh, you rely on something for your for standing somewhere. Yeah. But then after a while you realize that actually the place you are standing isn't really steady. There's earthquakes coming all along, yeah? Or it's like a carpet. You're standing on a loose carpet. Uh, and before you know it, nature comes and pulls the carpet out from under your feet. Uh, 
and when it comes and pulls the carpet out from under your feet, uh, then, of course, you fall over. Yeah, that's what happens when someone pulls the carpet where you're standing. Uh, so you stop the alaya, and you become analaya instead, which is the negative version. You don't adhere. You don't take your stand on anything. Uh, you don't settle on anything. Uh, you give up that craving and that attachment. Uh, so that is the uh, third noble truth, the giving up of craving here. So how do you give up craving? Uh, and I've talked about this a bit already, but just to recap very briefly, uh, the answer is that you, first of all, you reduce the craving gradually. Uh, yeah, you can take it, bring it down, down, down by being wise, by not getting upset with other people, or at least getting less upset. Yeah, not getting upset at all is pretty hard. Uh, you have to be a real you know, a real saint to be able to do that. Uh, but sometimes there are little saints coming on these retreats. Uh, do I? <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's the case. Uh, so, uh, but uh, you ha usually not to have any ill will and anger is a long way down the path. Uh, but uh, still, you can reduce it a lot. So reduce these things and also reduce your interest in the sensual world a little bit because you realize how ultimately it has to be all let go of. Uh, yeah and then craving dies down. But in the end, uh, like uh, as I mentioned before, to really get rid of craving, the only way to do that is through insight. Uh, because craving stops when you understand non-self. Uh, that is really what it is all about. Because as long as there is a self, uh, you will attach to things. And when you attach to things, you hold on to things, uh, that self will crave and will desire things. Uh, so it is through insight into non-self is really the critical issue. Uh, and that is why when we uh, want to understand the third noble truth fully, you come back to dependent origination or dependent cessation again. Uh, because dependent cessation shows you the causal links that lead up to craving. Uh, and the root cause of craving is avidja, as we saw before. Uh, so you go back from craving to feeling, from feeling to six sense places and backwards and backwards uh, until you come to avidja, delusion, illusion, uh, and all of those kind of things. Uh, so uh, that uh, brings us back to the dependent cessation, yeah? Uh, 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 from, the, from the cessation of avijja, yeah? avijjaya, uh, niroda, uh, sankara, nirodo, that each, from each, the cessation of each link, yeah, you get the cessation of the next one, and then all the way through the whole process. Uh, that is then how it how the cessation process com comes into being. Why is that? Well, because when you uh, see the idea of non-self, you see impermanence, you see dukkha, you understand where dukkha is, uh, well, you don't crave for those things that are dukkha. You don't crave to be reborn. You don't crave for the sensual pleasures. Uh, and you're happy just to sit down and enjoy jhanas. Yeah, that's where you find the real happiness uh, when you become a Buddha or an Arahant. Uh, and to attain the jhana states, uh, you don't need any will. In fact, you have to let go of the will to do that. So the will is becomes irrelevant at this particular point. Sankaras, uh, you understand, they don't get you anywhere because you don't want to do anything in the future. You just want to relax and chill right now and enjoy uh, the jhana states and the samadhi in the present moment. Uh, yeah, so because of that, sankaras don't have a place anymore. Uh, there's none of this kind of desire or choices for the future because you see in the future is actually uninteresting. Uh, so from uh, uh, overturning avidja as the first factor, 
of dependent origination and sankaras also cease as a consequence of that. Uh, seeing things according to reality means uh, that interest in the future is gone. Uh, in fact, you understand sankara is a problem because they actually block you from accessing happiness in the present moment. Uh, it dies down. Uh, and then when it dies down, it means that your consciousness is no longer uh, kind of heading towards the future. There's no inclination towards any particular realm. Uh, the sankharas are missing, uh, so there is, there's, there's a, a lack of that choice for the future. At the same time, you don't have any station for that consciousness. You don't have any bhava inside of you. You don't exist anymore in the sense that you have any interest in any of these realms. Uh, Remember yesterday I was talking about the bhava. The bhava is like uh, where your mind is kind of inclining towards. Uh, yeah, If you sit down in meditation, you see your mind is inclining towards certain things where it tends to fall back to. At this point, your mind is no longer inclining to anything. Uh, all that existence, whether it is uh, uh, jhana states or arupa states or whatever it is, uh, you, there's no inclination towards any of that. Uh, so it doesn't... Consciousness is no longer stationed at any particular level. Uh, and when this happens, then uh, uh, it doesn't project into the future. There is no uh, movement, there is no uh, clinging, and then the, there's no, uh, uh, it doesn't actually carry on into the future life as a consequence. Uh, so it stops right there. Uh, and this is what the Dhamma, kind of the idea of the ending of rebirth. Uh, yeah? That's how it comes to an end, uh, in a sense. Uh, so this is what you see when you become a stream mentor. You see the power of craving to uh, engender rebirth. Uh, before that, it it's maybe hard to fully understand what is going on, uh, but it is with stream mentoring that you see that, because when you are a stream mentor, it's the first time in your life that you understand what lack of craving is. It's the first time you have no craving at all, uh, yeah? no underlying tendency to crave. Uh, and the reason why you have that is because you have understood dukkha. If you understand dukkha, you can't crave for the five khandhas. You can't crave for them because you know that dukkha, you can't crave for what is dukkha. Huh? Yeah. Huh? So because of that, then you understand why craving has the ability to engender rebirth and carry you forward. Because you have seen the end of craving for the first time. Only by stepping out of craving, just like stepping out of the water, can you fully understand what craving is uh, and what it does. Uh, and that's why stream entry allows you that insight. Uh. Okay. So that is the uh, cessation of uh, dukkha. Yeah? According to the Buddha, it is possible to end dukkha. It's good, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> and uh, but of course, uh, sometimes it's kind of feels. I don't know. The you, when you hear the Buddhist teachings, they seem kind of um, a bit almost like bland. Almost, yeah. You end dukkha. It doesn't sound all that okay. Ending dukkha. So what? Yeah, it doesn't sound all that, uh, you know, marvelous. Perhaps. Uh, yeah. Or you you hear about these high jhana realms and they're kind of a dukkha masukha. There's not a happiness, no suffering. It doesn't sound all that exciting. Yeah, I don't, I'd rather be really happy rather than going to these neutral <laughs> things. And uh, so this, you have to remember that the way the Buddha looks at the world is quite different from the way we understand the world. Uh, so to really understand what the Buddha is talking about, sometimes it, we need to consider things from the reverse side. Uh, it is not just that you end dukkha and then you feel kind of really bland and everything is really boring and life is kind of pointless and oh, oh I wish I hadn't practiced this path. Yeah, just uh, now. <laughs> uh, imagine coming to the end and then you think, oh, this is really bad news. Yeah, this is really, that, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Uh, 
So you have to remember that there is an alternative view of this, and that is that this path is also incredibly happy from a point of the view of an ordinary person. It's an incredibly happy path. Uh, there's this bliss upon bliss upon bliss, uh, which is how Ajahn Brahm describes it in his uh, uh, mindfulness, bliss and beyond. Yeah, bliss upon bliss upon bliss is how he describes the path of meditation. And that uh, is a very important part of it. Yeah, This is kind of an ask from a whirling, from a putujanist point of view. This is what you experience. Uh, you experience tremendous bliss. Uh, and from the Buddha's point of view, he might call it dukkha, but we don't, we, can't, we don't really get that, what the Buddha is talking about. The Buddha is talking from this very high reality. So you need to bring it back to basic ideas. And that basic idea is that it is a very happy path. Uh, when we talk about the end of suffering, uh, we're also talking about the highest conceivable happiness at the same time. Uh, so don't forget that. Uh, yeah, This is why Buddhism often is considered so uh, pessimistic, because people don't really fully grasp what the Buddha means by the end of suffering. Uh, it is not bland. It is not boring. Uh, it is the highest happiness. Nibbanang paramang sukhang. Uh, and uh, so sometimes we need to be skillful in how we package uh, the uh, the Dhamma, how we uh, market it. Yeah, marketing is a very important part of this, I think. Uh, you need to market these things in a good way. Uh, and otherwise, uh, people don't listen to these things. And, and you know, it's true, right? Sometimes you listen to a Dhamma talk, you get really inspired, uh, you understand what it means. Uh, otherwise, you listen to a Dhamma talk and you kind of fall asleep, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> And <laughs> anyone here falling asleep? By the way, <coughs> just looking around, just in case. So, yeah, and this is true. So sometimes marketing actually matters how we present these ideas. You have to present them in a way that matters to people, that they actually feel that has an impact on their life. Can people can relate to it? Yeah, and this is so important. And this is I sometimes I'm fearful that sometimes when I read out these suttas that. Sometimes I lose people a little bit. Uh, and in a crowd like this, yeah, it is, uh, people have all come with all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, and if you come into this, you, you know, you start off with the Kachanagota Sutta we were reading out yesterday, and it's the first time you ever hear a Sutta from the Buddha, uh, probably will never see you again. Uh, yeah? <laughs> the last time we see you, because you think, oh, this is, is this Buddhism? Well, uh, this is not what I came for. I, I came to be happy. Yeah, I didn't come for this kind of stuff. Uh, so we have to do these things in a wise way. And this is one of the reasons, I think, why Ajahn Brahm tends to be so loved around the world, because he presents the Dhamma in a kind of very simple way. Yeah? And if you have heard all these stories, and after a while you, know, you, you think, oh, not that story again. But uh, that's, there's two things to remember there. First of all, it's very good for people who are at the beginning of the path. It's an easy access into the suttas. Uh, but the other thing to remember about Ajahn Brahm's stories uh, is that actually they are quite profound. Yeah, it, it is easy to dismiss them as just a, well. Sometimes you can dismiss his jokes, yeah, because sometimes it's just a joke and there's nothing more, and he just kind of does it just to lift up the atmosphere a bit. But some of these very simple stories, uh, actually, they are quite profound. Uh, yeah, and uh, if you really understand what they are about, they actually. Uh, the meaning behind them is uh, can take you all the way sometimes to the end of the path if you think about them in the right way. Uh, so don't just laugh. It's good, okay to laugh when you hear Rajan Ram's stories. You, uh, you don't have much choice. Yeah? They, sometimes they, the way he tells them is so funny you can't avoid laughing. But don't just laugh. Uh, also reflect on the content uh, because otherwise you will be missing out uh, because the content is often very beautiful and very useful and very practical at the same time. Uh, like um, 
like good, bad, who knows? Yeah, it's a nice story, but also very, uh, very, very practical and useful, etc. Et All of his stories, like where the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the worm in his lovely pile of dung. Yeah, <laughs> all of those stories in the, in the Indonesia, they call Ajahn Brahm. They call him Ajahn Kaching. Is anyone know under Indonesian here? Bahasa Indonesian. Kaching means like worm. Yeah, so they call him the the worm teacher. Yeah, the worm guru. Guru Kaching. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Chaching. Chaching. Okay, Chaching probably. Okay, yeah. So they so they call Ch Guru Chaching. So he's the teacher of the worms. Yeah, because everyone is in the story. In this story, everyone is like this worm in the lovely pile of dung. The pile of dung is a metaphor for or a simile for samsara. Yeah. So everyone is holding on to samsara, clinging on, clinging on to the dung. So he's the teacher of these worms in the in the dung. <laughs> and in the on the covers, the, the, his Ajahn Brahm's books in Indonesia they are bestsellers. Yeah, they are, they are like in Indonesia. It's like the number one bestseller is the Quran. Number two is the Bible. Number three is the teacher of the of the of the worms. Yeah, that's Ajahn Brahm. He's always number three. Yeah. Yeah, and then number four is Harry Potter. Yeah, number five is a kind of thing. Yeah, but Ajahn Brahm is kind of up there. Yeah. So Ajahn Brahm is like the Buddhist Bible in Indonesia. It's like a Quran, Bible, and an Ajahn Brahm. Yeah. And those books, they're literally on the cover. There's a pile of dung, and there's a worm coming out of the dung. Yeah, and that, that is the, on the cover of those books. <laughs> So, but it's done in a very nice way, done by a, a skilled artist. Yeah, so it kind of looks very nice. Uh, so they have. So this is one of the things. Yeah, and the, this is marketing. Yeah, and they have been very successful with the marketing in Indonesia. So these books are very famous, even among non-Buddhists. Yeah, even among Muslims and Christians, uh, all of them read these books in Malaysia, uh, in, in Indonesia. It's nice. I have I have traveled quite a bit in Indonesia myself, and you travel around and you give dhamma talks, and then you have little retreats, uh, and you look at the audience, and the majority is Buddhist, uh, but there's also Muslims and Christians coming to those talks. Yeah, you see the the women sitting there with their headscarves. Yeah, and then after the talk, they come and ask you questions about meditation practice. Uh, these are Muslim women uh, in the audience. Uh, yeah, or Muslim men as well. Uh, they're all there, and it's really kind of um, it's nice, yeah. It is a it's an open society, Indonesia, much more open than some other Muslim countries, uh, and that's kind of uh, uh, one of the endearing things about Indonesia that openness that they that they have there, uh, which is which is really nice. Uh, so um, anyway, that's what happens when you when you teach these things and you actually market them in the right way, yeah. So if you have any complaints about my marketing abilities, please write it down. Yeah, maybe we can market a bit better next time around, so we kind of uh, people don't kind of walk out halfway through the talk and say, "Oh no, that Ajahn Brahmali, he is hopeless," uh, and we we'll see if we can <laughs> can make it do it better instead. Uh, so anyway, let's get back to the topic. <laughs> We're getting sidetracked. That's probably bad marketing, getting so sidetracked. Uh, so now what I want to look at now is, uh, well, if ignorance, if avidja is the problem at the root and we want to overturn avidja and we want to make it into vidja instead, we want to make ignorance into understanding, we want to make delusion into clarity, clear seeing, yeah? If you want to do that, how do we do that? Uh, how, do we, how does this happen? Uh, and of course, one way that it happens is that you practice the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, yeah, the Noble Eightfold Path uh, 
of course, the result of that one is insight. That's kind of the purpose of it. Uh, this is Buddhism 101. Uh, practice Noble Ever Path, and then you get insight. You become enlightened or awakened or an arahant as a consequence of that uh, if you take it far enough. Uh, but there is many different ways of expressing this practice. And one of the suttas that I often read out uh, is this next sutta, actually called the Avijja Sutta, which expresses this Noble Eightfold Path or this practice in a slightly different way. Uh, it's useful to see this path from different angles, uh, but the more angles you have, uh, the easier it is to understand what is actually going on. Uh, so let's uh, have a quick look at this uh, sutta. I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I want to get onto the path probably this afternoon, but uh, let's just have a quick look. So on page 8 we have the sutta from the AN 10.61, Anguttara Nikaya, Numerical Discourses, 10th chapter, Sutta 61. Uh, I'm just helping you to understand this uh, this uh, annotations here, so you can understand the references. Uh. So, uh, mendicants, okay, Ajahn Sujato translation, you know that straight away. Uh. So if you don't like his translation, you can put it aside and take another one. If you like it, you are in luck, because it's right here. Uh. Mendicants, it is said that no first point of ignorance is evident, uh, before which there was no ignorance, and afterwards it came to be him. And yet it is evident that there is a specific condition for ignorance or for delusion. So here we come back to the same point that there is no first point in things. Yeah, It's interesting here that when we talk about the first point of something, whether we talk about the first point of rebirth, the first point of the universe, the first point of craving, the first point of ignorance, it all means the same thing really here. Yeah, from a Buddhist point of view, it's the same. Uh, whether you talk about the first point of the universe or a first point of ignorance, it means the same thing. Yeah, because the universe is our world; it is our outlook, uh, and that is always comes with ignorance and craving. So there's just different ways of looking at the same thing. Yeah. So when we discussed this before, the same discussion applies here. This idea of no first point. So. Um, it has always been there. Ignorance begets ignorance. Uh, ignorance is self-perpetuating. Yeah, it builds up more ignorance in the future. Delusion creates delusion, and that is why it is so hard to get out of. Uh, yeah, this is the problem that we are faced with. How can you get out of delusion when you are already deluded? Because delusion delusion blinds you to your own delusion. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the Kind of terrible, isn't it? Delusion blinds you to your own delusion. It shows you how hard it is uh, to deal with these things. Uh. But the interesting point here is that it has a specific condition. yeah, And this is what this is about. So there is a condition for that ignorance. Uh. And so now we're going to look at what that condition is. Uh, and we're going to try to bring it back, 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 back. One condition before the before the previous one and see what the root problem is uh, yeah this is what this is about this is really exciting isn't it uh, what is the root problem uh, of this whole thing uh, once you get to the very root uh, you start to know what it is that you have to do you start to understand how this whole thing kind of holds together uh. so the buddha then says uh, i say ignorance is fueled by something uh, it is not unfueled or you can say it has a nutriment. Yeah, the Pali word is ahara. Ahara means something like fuel or nutriment. It means like food almost. Uh, 
Food is fuel, yeah, it is nutriment. What is the fuel for this avidja ignorance? You should say the five hindrances. Yeah, this is interesting because it is very interesting because the five hindrances is something that we learn about in Buddhism all the time. In fact, so much of the path of practice is precisely about overcoming the five hindrances. So here you are because we know so much about the five hindrances it's a very practical thing it's something that we deal with all the time here it says if you can overcome the five hindrances you are eliminating the fuel for delusion so what does it mean what does fuel mean what does nutriment mean what does this ahara mean and fuel means two things or nutriment means two things yeah it means if you add nutriment to something it makes things grow yeah, it makes it worse or better depending on what you are growing, and also you sustain its existence. Yeah, you make it increase and also you make it sustain its existence. So as long as you add that fuel, you will be increasing the result. And here the result is avidja. So if you add five hindrances, you get more delusion. The more of these hindrances you have, the more delusion you have because the five hindrances they fuel, they are nutriment to delusion. Yeah, so this then is like the uh, solution. What we have to do is reduce those five hindrances uh, because by reducing them, you're taking away the nutriment and the fuel for ignorance. Uh, and when the five hindrances are completely gone, uh, there is no fuel, there's no nutriment, there's nothing to sustain that avidja anymore, the delusion, nothing to sustain it. Uh, and when there's nothing to sustain it, it becomes very weak. Uh, it's like if you don't give nutriment to a human being, after a while they become incredibly weak. Eventually they die if you don't eat. Yeah, And in the same way, ignorance is a bit like that. Uh, take away the five hindrances, uh, it becomes weak. And that is why it is only after having removed the five hindrances uh, that you can overturn that avidja, that ignorance, uh, at the root of dependent origination. Uh, yeah? What else is required? How come it doesn't just overturn automatically if you take away the uh, hindrances? And the reason is because you also need right view. Uh, yeah, This is the other ingredient that is required. Uh, because if you haven't got right view, it is very difficult to penetrate through that delusion. Uh, you can't really see through it. Uh, so this is the other factor. Now what is interesting about the sequence that we're going to look at now is that when we go back to the very beginning, the starting point is actually right view. Uh, so if you practice the sequence, when you come to the elimination of the five hindrances, it is assumed that you're bringing that right view with you. So by eliminating the five hindrances and having right view, bang, ignorance is gone. Vidya arises, light is turned on. Yeah, you come out of the eggshell. Wow, this is what it looks like. Yeah, this is what happens when you do this in the right way. Those are the two things you need to actually be able to break through. Right view and the elimination of the five hindrances. Then these things happen. Then avidja is overturned. So that is what, uh, how, how this works. So that this is why it is so incredibly important to overcome those five hindrances. This is why so much of the path actually is about that. Uh, yeah? This is what we are dealing with. So the question is then, how do we overcome these things in the right way? So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to, uh, instead of following the sequence that you see there, because this shows you how each kind of bad 
how the each bad quality leads to another bad quality, I'm going to look at the positive side. Yeah, for once, I'm going to look at the positive side. Yeah, I'm not going to look at dukkha. I'm going to look at the whoa, the good things. Yeah, it's good news. Uh, so um, now we're going to look at the positive side. What is the quality that fuels the one after it in a positive way? Yeah, all the way down to the root positive quality. So. Uh, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go to the very last paragraph on page 8, and that's what I'm going to look at. So, so the opposite of avidja yeah, is vidja. It is, uh, uh, here it is called knowledge and freedom, uh, vidja vimuti. And uh, the knowledge is, of course, the understanding of things according to reality, the understanding of things as non-self and all of that. And the freedom is the liberation from suffering and the defilements. Yeah, so this to get to this knowledge, uh, you need fuel. What is the fuel for these things? And this is actually quite interesting, what will come out of this sequence here. Uh, what is the fuel for that liberation and knowledge? Uh, and the Buddha says here, the seven awakening factors. The Satta Sambhojanga is the fuel for this. So many of you will know what these Sambhojangas are. Yeah, we have uh, uh, this. Uh, we talked about this uh, at last year's retreat at quite a bit of length. Uh, but these Satta Sambhojangas are essentially the path, the sam practice of Samadhi. That's really what they are. Yeah, the Sambhojangas, I mentioned them before, they start off with the Sati Sambhojanga, the Sati being the mindfulness, so the awakening factor of mindfulness. And they go through the sequence that includes piti, yeah, the uh, joy of the path, the pasadi, the tranquility of the mind, and the samadhi, samadhi Sambhojangas. There you are, samadhi. And last one is the Upeka Sambhojanga, which really is a reference to the fourth jhana. That's where the Upeka becomes absolutely solid. It's already there in the third jhana to some extent, but in the fourth it is really where it really becomes really strong. So it's all about Samadhi practice, yeah, Sambhojangas. And uh, very often in the suttas you can see the Sambhojangas and the, the four jhanas being used almost as synonyms. They're not really full synonyms because the bhujangas are about the pr also about the process that leads to the samadhi, the jhanas. Yeah? Uh, but uh, they are very closely related to each other. Uh, and this is a message that you see in the suttas in so many places. Yeah? It's almost found everywhere. It is found in some of the very core teachings of, uh, uh, of the Dhamma. This idea that to see things according to reality, uh, to have freedom, uh, to have the... Um, what does it say here? Uh, vidja and vimutti, liberation and knowledge. To, in other words, to see things in the right way, to have that knowledge and insight. Uh, it is samadhi that leads to that. Uh, it's, that it's everywhere yeah, in the suttas. Uh, and it's so important because uh, sometimes samadhi happens to be undervalued on the path. Uh, uh, and it is true. Sometimes people say, you know, oh, it is hard to attain samadhi in daily life and all of this. And it's a good point. And I, I appreciate that. And I, I don't want to kind of push people to do things that are impossible. But it's good to remember that because it means that when you go on retreat, uh, if you have that inclination and the mind is going there, don't stop. Yeah. Take that samadhi as far as you possibly can. If you're able to do it, please do it. Because it is very profound. It gives 
rise to a very powerful mind. It also gives rise to natural insight because you have to give up a lot to get there. And it gives you the ability, as it says here, to actually make that breakthrough to awakening itself. Uh, so it is extraordinarily important on the path. That's why the Noble Eightfold Path ends with Samadhi. That's why the dependent liberation formula goes from Samadhi to Yatabhuta Nanadasana. Always, and this is a very, very common formula in the suttas. Uh, and because it is so common, it actually matters a lot. Uh, so this is something that is pervades the suttas. Yeah? And here you see it again. And it comes in different shapes and forms, in different contexts, uh, put together in different ways. Uh, and every time the message is basically the same. So this is the the first one here. Yeah, the some importance of samadhi for this. Now, now it gets interesting because then it says, "What is the fuel? What is the nutriment for these seven awakening factors?" And the answer is, it says here, the four kinds of mindfulness meditation. This is a Bhante Sujato's translation of the four satipatthanas. Yeah, he calls the four kinds of mindfulness meditation. Yeah, this is the cause of samadhi. This is the cause. This is how you actually get to the sambhojangas by practicing satipatthana. This is another very important point. Satipatthana, the main purpose of satipatthana in the suttas is to give rise to samadhi. Yeah, very often we talk about satipatthana and vipassana as if satipatthana is all about insight practice. And it is about insight as well, because the, the point about satipatthana is to take you to samadhi, but the path to samadhi happens both through insight and through samatha, because samatha and vipassana must always go together. So I'm not saying it is not about vipassana, but what I'm saying is that its purpose ultimately is to go to samadhi, via samadhi, and then to vijja, and then to full understanding. So this is the point yeah, of Satipatthana practice. This is why when you watch the breath, you are doing Satipatthana. Not only are you doing it, you are fulfilling it. So you carry on with that one and you use your wisdom and insight as part of the practice of Anapanasati, watching the breath. Yeah? You calm it down, you use the wisdom faculty as well at the same time, and you build all of these things up until it takes you all the way to the jhana states. That is how you practice Satipatthana to take you to the jhanas, yeah? and to take you through this whole process. So Satipatthana purpose is really to take you to deep samadhi. And this is, again, is something that actually is everywhere in the suttas. The, the, uh, one of the problems, and I think it's a very big problem, is that the majority of people, when they to understand Satipatthana, they tend to read only one sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta. Huh? But that is not enough. If you want to understand Satipatthana, you have to read all the contexts yeah, of Satipatthana, how it is found everywhere. Huh? And there's a vast number of contexts in the suttas. Huh? And those contexts are always Samasati leading to Samasamadhi. That's what it is. And that then gives you the information you need to understand the Satipatthana Sutta in the right way, what actually the main purpose is. Anyway, so that is about um, mindfulness meditation, Satipatthana meditation. And uh, then, so this is equivalent to the seventh factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, yeah, the set the previous one, awakening factors, is equivalent to the uh, last factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. So basically we're seeing the Noble Eightfold Path here, but in a different, slightly different way. Uh, 
And then the Buddha says, I say that the four kinds of mindfulness meditation are also fueled by something. They are not unfueled. And what is their fuel? And you should say the three kinds of good conduct. The tini su charitani. Charita is conduct. Su is good. Yeah? Su is good. It's nice to have the name Su, isn't it? Su <laughs> Su means good in Pali. Very handy. If you had the name Du, it would be bad because Du means bad. Yeah. So Su Su is a is, is a really good one. Is anyone called Du here? No. Okay. So it, it, just just checking. Yes. Yeah, so I don't say anything too bad or wrong to anyone. So uh, <coughs> okay. Uh, so the three kinds of good conduct are the causes yeah the supports the fuel the nutriment the conditions for mindfulness meditation and i've been saying this so many times but here it is again black on white the good conduct see like kindness yeah this is where it comes from so again if the mindfulness meditation isn't working why you come back to the three kinds of good conduct how can I improve my life even more than I have improved it already? And I, I don't say this to disparage anyone. I, I don't say this because I think anyone is bad or anything like that. That's not the point. The point is that good people, even really good people, can do more to become even better. Yeah? One thing is to be a good person. Another thing is to be a saint. Yeah. So you kind of move more towards sainthood. Yeah. So if you are a little bit of a saint already, become a bit more of a saint. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's the, the kind of junior saint, the middle saint, and then the senior saint. Yeah, they're kind of going through the stages. Uh. So uh, please understand these in the right way. And don't always focus on your lack or the negative qualities in yourself. When I say this, yes, we have to uncover our, our negative qualities. But remember the good things that you have done. Remember how you have kind of started out and you have moved in the right direction. Remember what you are like today compared to what you were. 10 years ago, yeah, or whatever. I sometimes do that with myself, and I feel a lot of kind of encouragement when I see myself now compared to what I was like. You know, I don't want to even think about what I was like, tw you know, <laughs> 25 years ago, whatever, before I became a monk even. And uh, so that really encourages you because you can see this path working. Yeah, it actually does something to you. It, is, it has this transformative effect, and you become a more contented, happy, and better person in general. So this is what, where it is at. This is what you need to look at. Uh, and remember that uh, the idea of good conduct is very profound in Buddhism. Yeah, it is very hard to fulfill this completely. Uh, it takes a lot of commitment to live these things fu fully. Uh, good conduct by body. Okay, you can do that reasonably well, most people. Yeah, because that is the easiest one. Good conduct by speech. Uh, already more difficult yeah it's difficult to always say kind things you know what i mean it's not always easy to get it right every single time so there's often more you can do there in that area and then of course the last one good conduct by mind uh, that is the the hardest one of all uh, but once you so this is so there's a lot of things to work work with there but once you have meta once you have kindness and friendliness through all of these three consistently yeah not all the time because maybe impossible but at least very consistently here yeah, then you are starting to fulfill this thing here yeah. so this is where it is all at yeah. this is the support for meditation practice combined as i mentioned yesterday with right view yeah. then it all comes together here yeah. okay then we have the uh, support for that. The fuel for that is called sense restraint. 
Why is that? Because without that sentence restraint, you will not be able to uh, keep the three kinds of good conduct. Yeah, If you don't have any sense restraint, your mind is going to think dodgy things, uh, bad things, uh, unwholesome things. Uh, so you need to have that sense restraint, first of all. What does sense restraint mean? It means basically being wise about how you look at the situations in life. Yeah, It doesn't mean that you have to have used a lot of willpower or anything like that. I make this point every time. But what it means is that when you uh, meet difficult people or whatever, you are wise in how you deal with those difficult people. Uh, you don't become silly by getting upset and angry. Uh, you think, okay, actually, it's not really my problem if other people are stupid. It's their problem. Uh, yeah. So you have compassion instead. And this is kind of the way to think. Uh, if you can think like that, you're doing really, really, really well on the Buddhist path. Uh, because this is kind of almost like the holy grail of getting this path right. Uh, so other people being stupid, none of your business. It's their problem. Even if they're shouting at you, still is not none of your business. Uh, because actually it doesn't mean that you are bad. It just means that they are silly. That's really all it means. Uh. So uh, I, I will come back to the idea of sense restraint a lot uh, in the following uh, next couple of days. Uh, because this is so important to understand how to do this in the right way here. Uh. Uh, what is the fuel for sense restraint? Uh, it says here it is mindfulness and situational awareness, uh, uh, often called also, this is sati sampajanya in Pali. Uh, situational awareness is to be aware in all the, the various situations of life, uh, wh whether what you're doing is useful or not for the path. That's really what it means. Uh, sampajanya, often defined as a, a clear awareness of purpose and suitability. Is what I'm doing, is it suitable yeah, to kind of lead me in the right direction on the path? Or am I doing something which leads me away from these things? Uh, and you can kind of classify your life into those things. Yeah, Going to the casino, is that going to be suitable or not uh, to kind of peaceful states of mind? Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Is that a good thing, casino? Huh? Good idea? I, I don't know. Have, have you been to casinos before? Huh? Anyone here? Huh? Yes, some of you have. Huh? Yeah. I've been to casinos, I know what it's like. Yeah not really a very, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I wouldn't recommend going there. It's kind of a mis quite miserable and dark and very kind of a place full of craving and kind of bad mental states. Uh, it feels very dodgy. A few years ago, I went to Macau. You've been to Macau, any of you? I went to Macau. My parents were around and said, oh, we have to, let's go to, we went on the way to China. So we stopped in Hong Kong and we went to Macau on the way. And so we, we thought, I, th I said to them, let's go to one of these casinos, yeah, because I've never really been to a proper casino before. Uh, I was a monk already, so, I, so it was kind of interesting to go to a casino as a monk, yeah. And when they saw me in the doorway, they were not too happy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> monk at the casino is not kind of very popular here. But uh, so we went into that. That was just after it had opened. It was a large casino called the Venetian in Hong Kong. Yeah? And it's like it's kind of built on the theme. It's like Venice. Yeah? So when you go in there, they have this, con have this kind of artificial waterways with gondolas. And they're kind of staking these gondola boats around. It's just really artificial and strange. Yeah? But also very opulent yeah? and luxurious and all of this. Uh, but the atmosphere to me was very kind of uh, oppressive almost. Uh, yeah, And very... Uh, kind of, um, I don't know, I, it was just very, very unpleasant. And you can see how people get into all of these uh, states of mind uh, as a consequence of going to these places that are really go against the grain of the Dhamma. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't really recommend people to go to casinos if you really have to go. Okay, if you have to go, then maybe, maybe you go there to give a Dhamma talk or something. I <laughs> 
I didn't go I didn't go to the gaming floor by the way. I just saw the gaming floor and I stayed clear of that, but I kind of walked around in the other parts with my with my parents and after a while we just said, Okay, let's get out of here. This is too depressing and then we went to some other places. Uh, I'm just telling you what I get up to as a Buddhist monk. Yeah, yeah. So I'm being honest, being honest with you here. So uh, this is about situational awareness, just knowing what is appropriate, what is useful, yeah? Think about that in your daily life. What is kind of helpful for your practice and what is not? Uh, and then uh, you are on the right track. This is very important for monastics, uh, yeah? As a monastic, when you go into the city or to the towns, and we do that quite regularly, uh, you know the purpose. My purpose of coming here to, da- to uh, Buddha Loka Center uh, is to... Uh, teach yeah it is not to kind of mess around and do silly things you do things for the right purpose you understand why you are here etc and this is uh, important in monastic life as it is in uh, also in lay life as well to some extent perhaps more so in monastic life so what is the uh, cause or what is the fuel for that Uh, and the fuel for uh, mindfulness and situational awareness is Proper attention. Proper attention is yoniso manasikara. Yeah, uh, one of these very fundamental words. I have I've talked about this before already on this retreat, uh, but it means looking at things, uh, thinking about the world in the right way. And uh, uh, basically, what it means is that if you attend to the world in such a way that your good qualities become greater and your bad qualities go down, then it is yoniso manasikara. If your bad qualities are increasing yeah, or, and your good qualities are going down, it's ayoniso manasikara. It's the negative thing. Yeah. That's how basically it is defined in the Sabhasava Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 2. So it has to do with wise attention, being wise in how you look at things in the world. Uh, that is the yoniso manasikara. Uh. So uh, if you look at something and you get upset, ayoniso manasikara. If you look at something and you have compassion and kindness, yoniso manasikara. Yeah, it's as simple as that. Uh, so then you know whether you have those things or not. Uh, um, so we can I carry on for ten minutes? Is that okay? Okay, uh, please tell me off if I go too long because uh, I just want to finish this sutta. Otherwise, we will never finish this uh, th- these things. I will continue a little bit. So, then, what is the fuel for this yoniso manasikara? And the fuel for the yoniso manasikara is uh, uh, faith, yeah, sadha. And uh, interesting because yoniso manasikara is a kind of wisdom. And here it says that faith is the source of wisdom. Uh, which is fascinating. How can it be that faith is the source of wisdom? And the answer is that initially, when you start out, you have faith in the Buddha's teachings. Uh, the Buddha says, this is the right way to think, this is the wrong way. So you follow that path, yeah? And then you see that it works. And gradually, that faith turns into your own wisdom down the track. Uh, you start to see it works, you start to see how it works, and then you um, act accordingly. So faith gradually confidence gradually moves into your own personal wisdom over time. Uh, so you start with the faith in the Buddha's teachings. Uh, but it also shows you, as I was saying before, this idea in Buddhism that faith and wisdom are very closely related to each other. Uh, faith grows with wisdom, wisdom grows with faith, and they're really two sides of the same coin in Buddhism. Uh, you can't really 
fully extract them or extricate them from it each other. They belong together as one thing. Uh, so you start with that confidence. Uh, and uh, remember, confidence, if it is real confidence, it tends to come with a sense of joy, uh, yeah? a sense of uplift, a uh, sense of inspiration. Uh, the Dhamma Veda, the Atta Veda that you find uh, in a number of places in the suttas uh, as part of that faith. Uh. So where does faith come from uh, or confidence? Fairly obvious, it comes from reading the word of the Buddha. Yeah, uh, You hear the word of the Buddha and you think, yeah, this makes sense. If you are kind, you become happy. Yeah, this is kind of one of the root understandings of Buddhism. If you are kind, if you have a good heart, it makes you a happy person. In fact, no happiness is greater than the happiness that comes from having a really good heart. So this is kind of basic things. Yeah, This is what it says in the suttas. You think, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, confidence arises, and then you practice accordingly. This is how it comes together. So understanding the Dhamma, understanding these teachings, that is where confidence comes from. Yeah, and sometimes you may not even notice, but you know you kind of gradually get brainwashed as you come to these things, yeah? And that brainwashing is a good brainwashing. Be happy that you get a good washing out, yeah? Because uh, this is what clears up the kind of problems and things in the world, and things become clear, and you become conditioned in a certain sense. The point, of course, is that brainwashing is inevitable. Yeah? The point is that brainwashing is just another word for conditioning here. Yeah? And if you don't get conditioned by Buddhist teachings, uh, you're going to get conditioned by something silly in the world instead. Uh, that's far worse. Uh, so choose your brain, choose the good brainwashing. That's really what it means. Uh. So how do you get that good brainwashing? By hanging out with the good people. Yeah, that's the bottom one here. Sapporisa, sangseva. Sangsa means to associate with or to hang out with in colloquial colloquial language. Uh. So you hang out with sapporisa. Uh, sapporisa. Superior people, good people, Aryas, the noble ones, the Arahants of the world, uh, yeah? Hang out with the Arahants. Is that a good idea to hang out with the Arahants? Uh, good idea, right? Uh, so, <laughs> so how do we know who the Arahants are if it's a good idea to hang out with them? Uh, this is the downside. You don't know who they are. Uh, so what that means is that one person that we must assume is an Arahant is the Buddha, he just said it. Yeah, he, he gave he gave it away. Please don't give it away, Ajahn Isai. <laughs> no, I'm being naughty. <laughs> so we are, so the Buddha is number one arahant. Yeah, so you hang out with the Buddha, and this is what we're doing on the retreat like this. You're hanging out with the Buddha. Yeah, do you get that feeling? You're hanging out with the Buddha. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so you hang out with the Buddha a little bit. Not just the Buddha, because that's impossible. You have also to hang out with other people as well. So you ask yourself, who are the people who have those qualities that you feel you can trust in the world? Yeah, and That is when you kind of uh, feel, have this combination of suttas and also people who you feel reflect those qualities in the personal practice that are talked about in the suttas. Uh, then you are on the right track. Uh, you hang out with these people. That is the root cause. Yeah, of this whole thing. This is where it all starts. Yes, it all starts with hanging out with the right people, hearing the teachings of the Buddha, hearing the real Dhamma. That is where it comes from. And this whole process, going all the way to liberation, is sourced, is grounded, is founded on that very simple thing. And that is kind of astonishing. People often forget that and very often say, yeah, I'm just going to do the practice. Yeah, and I'm not going to kind of listen to the sutta so much because that's just theory or whatever. I'm just going to sit down and meditate. But 
it doesn't work like that according to the Buddha. It actually comes from listening and understanding the sutta. That's where it comes from. Uh, and the practice, if there is practice, should come from that as a natural consequence uh, of understanding what is going on. Uh, yeah. So this is all a natural sequence. If you really understand the word of the Buddha, you want to do these things. Uh, you want to be kind. You want to be, you know, all of these these qualities. And then this whole process happens as a consequence. Uh, so marvelous thing. It's almost like it's almost a little bit miraculous, isn't it? How can you just listen to the suttas and then this whole thing kind of happens? How come I'm not enlightened already? I've been listening to the suttas for a long time. What's going on? Well, keep on doing it. Yeah, come back to it. Listen with care. Reflect more on what is going on. Ask yourself if you really understand these things. And the more you understand these things, the more powerful it becomes. Yeah. Don't, is anyone here who does not want to be kind when you hear this sutras? Isn't that kind of a natural consequence of hearing this? You want to live well? It's so blooming obvious, isn't it? That this is what you want to do if you hear this sutras in the right way. So it is very powerful. And the, I just want to finish off by just uh, this simile again, which actually gives, expresses this in a very beautiful way, how this is a natural sequence. And the simile here is the simile of the rain on the mountaintop. Uh, yeah? And I've talked about this many times before, but it is such a powerful simile to bring home this idea, what is going on. Uh, and it is right there in the next uh, paragraph or a couple of paragraphs down. And the idea of the simile is that uh, it rains on the mountaintop. Yeah? The rain on the mountaintop is like the first step here. It is like the seeing, hanging out with the superior people, listening to the good Dhamma. That is the rain on the mountaintop. And when it rains on the mountaintop, then that rain eventually, if it keeps on raining, it forms into little streams, yeah, little creeks, and they go down. And that is like the next step of these 12 steps. Yeah, You start to have Yonisomanasikara. You start to have mindfulness and situational awareness. First of all, you have Sadda. I forgot that one. And then as these as it keeps on raining, the point is it has to keep on raining. That's the that's the kind of the point, yeah? If it keeps on raining, then those little streams become larger streams. If it keeps on raining, the critical thing is that it has to keep on raining. You have to keep on hanging out with those saparisas and listening to the Dhamma and gaining faith. If it keeps on raining, those larger streams they go into the lakes, yeah, the little lakes. If it keeps on raining, Eventually, those little lakes, they fill up. When the little lakes fill up, if the rain keeps coming down, they go into and become even larger streams. Those larger streams go into the larger lakes. And then when the larger lakes eventually fill up because it keeps on raining on the mountaintop, that's the critical thing. Those larger lakes overflow and they go into the large rivers. And eventually, those large rivers, they go to the ocean. And the ocean here is a simile, is a metaphor for Nibbana, yeah, going all the way to the ocean. Huh? And you notice the only thing that is required for this to happen is that it keeps on raining on the mountaintop. That's the critical one. Huh? What is that rain on the mountaintop? It is coming back to the Saparisa, to the Suttas. Huh? Why? Because that is what reminds you. That is what inspires you. That is what tells you what you have to do. Huh? Yeah, that is where it comes from. And then this whole process happens. So remember that. Come back to these things. 
come back to these teachings uh, yeah again and again and again and gradually it will sink in gradually you get clarity about what is going on uh, every year clarity becomes a little bit greater uh, every year your inspiration becomes stronger in what you have to do uh, your commitment and perseverance on the path gets strengthened uh, and as you do that this whole thing gradually unravels uh, and it happens as a matter of course uh, that is how this path works uh, sounds too easy uh, Almost, yeah? But actually, this is how it, uh, it works out. So, I'm going to leave it at that, because that is a good point to leave, and then we will start on the next Noble Truth uh, uh, after the, uh, the last one, after the, the break, uh, or after lunch and after everything else. So please keep on uh, enjoying yourself, uh, and have a nice lunch, and we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock. Yeah.